book of Psalms, Psalm 16, on page 454, if you're using that blue Bible. I will point out where the verse is. Now, there is a verse in this passage that the preachers and the apostles of the New Testament hung their hat on when it came to the resurrection of Jesus. The argument was, well, David wrote this psalm and he is long dead. And so this verse is proof that he was speaking about someone to come who would not be left in Sheol, whose remains would not corrode and rot in the grave. Obviously, it must have been about somebody in the future. And they hung their hat on that. Had to do with Jesus. So I'm going to start at verse 7 of Psalm 16 and read uh, to verse 11. I bless the Lord. I bless Yahweh. That's the covenant name of God used here. I bless Yahweh who gives me counsel in the night. Also my heart instructs me. I have set Yahweh always before me. Because He is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. Therefore my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, the place of the dead, or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. And now we turn to our New Testament readings of Philippians. Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 18, from page 980. You heard the choir singing a rendition of the heart of this passage. I'm going to talk about it, and then it just so happens providentially this will also be the passage from which we draw our confession of faith right before communion. So you're going to have a lot of Philippians 2 today. And so Paul writes this in Philippians 2. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped and emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling and disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, Children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon 
the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. What I've read to you from Psalms and what I've read to you from Philippians is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, risen and reigning, open our hearts to hear you today. Amen. You may be seated. If you're visiting, two things, just to let you know. Number one, on the back of the worship guide are, is the sermon outline, and it's really, really intensive. It's the same point three times, right? That's the three points. It's going to be the same point all three times, and you'll see why I'm doing that. Secondly, again, as I said, if you're visiting, if I get really loud and start shouting and turn beet red and my hair stands up, you know, and it starts smoking up here, it's just me. I don't, I'm not mad at anybody. I just get excited, so... So one night, my dad took me fishing. His plan was to fish that evening. I have lots of dad fishing stories, by the way, but this is only one of them. His plan was to fish that evening and sleep in our car, get up in the morning, and then eat what was caught for breakfast, and then fish some more in the morning. And I believe we did all those things that day, but not quite the way he had hoped. You see, as a super hyperactive kid, I know that surprises half of you, as a super hyperactive kid, I had an attention span that was all of about two inches long, and fishing was not what my overactive brain could handle. So after we had eaten supper, and after I had hopped around on the rocks on the bank for, you know, an hour, and after I had thrown lots of rocks in the water, and after I had scared all the fish away, it got dark. And my dad happily matched me, um, I don't know if he's happy, but I'm sure he's happy, happily marched me up to the car so I could go to sleep. It was up on the bank, out of sight. You couldn't see it, and he, I couldn't see him from the car. He couldn't see me from the bank. That was probably by design, but that's another story. So I get to the car, it's dark, and I'm all alone. I'm a bit scared, and he told me, he said, son, if you get really, really scared, something really, really freaky happens, just honk the horn of the car, and uh, I'll come running. So he left me, and we closed the doors, and I let the window crack over the back seat, and it had the crack in the window at the top, you know. And as time passed, maybe no more than about 20 minutes, things began to crawl on the car. Long-legged things that for a little boy looked like giant long-legged things, and they were crawling up the window right in front of my little face. I was freaked out of my mind. This was, this was worse than aliens, trust me. It was horrible. And so in great sheer panic, I jumped over the seat, went to the, the, the driving wheel where the horn was, and I began honking, wee, 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 just like Dad said to do, right? Well, my dad, blessing came racing up the bank to the car, cigarette in mouth, panting and breathlessly gasping, what's the matter, son, what's wrong? And I pointed out those giant, those long-legged giants crawling all over the car and dancing up the window. I've never seen those before. What's that? Granddaddy long legs, son. Granddaddy long legs. Well, how about that? Who would have known that? I didn't know that. I've never seen him in my life. And so he says, you called me up here for that? Well, yeah, I was scared. And so I started asking him a bazillion questions. Can they eat you? Does it hurt when they try? 
you know, things like that. I asked a bunch of questions, and Dad answered my questions and calmed me down and then left me in the car with those long-legged giants that no longer seemed to have fangs and real wild hair and all that stuff, and I was calmer. And he went back to fishing. I tell you the story because, my friends, we ask questions about things for good reason. We ask questions about things to get information. We ask questions about things to become better informed, to change aspects of our lives. And sometimes we ask questions to become assured that there's hope, assured that the long-legged giants don't eat us. You know what I mean? And so today we have one question. Why was there a resurrection? Why was there a resurrection? I'm going to hit it three different times in three different ways. And I'm going to be using this passage, and I would implore you to have your Bible open there to Philippians 2 so you can follow along and see what I'm referring to. So first off, why was there a resurrection? Now obviously, Paul has in mind both our Lord's resurrection from the grave and his ascension to the right hand of the Father when he says these words in verse 9. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and given him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. At the minimum, Paul is addressing the resurrection. Resurrection, where three days after his massacre, his death, Jesus came forth from the grave, body, blood, bones, toenails, and hair gloriously transformed, and no longer subject to mortality and misery. So the question that we rightly ask is, why? Why was there a resurrection? Well, it has to do with verse 8. If you look at verse 8, it's because of Jesus' humble, obedient death. Paul puts it this way, and being found in human form, he humbled himself, by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. The resurrection because our Lord had died. He died a humble, obedient death. As he died a death of obedience to the Father's plans and directions. He didn't mark out his own path. He didn't carve out his own destiny. He did not map out his own direction. As Jesus himself declared to his friends in John 12, Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up, will draw all people to myself. And he said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. There's a resurrection because there was a... He died a humble, obedient death. So that's the answer to the question. Why was there a resurrection? And it's a because answer. Because of his humble, obedient death. Which then leads us to another question. Why his humble, obedient death? And the answer jumps out at us in verses 6 and 7. So if you go back up to verses 6 and 7, it's because he took on the form of a servant. Here's how Paul writes it who, though he was in the form of God, whatever that means, whatever God is, Jesus was in that form. He was exactly that. He echoed that in all of his being. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself. Well, how did he empty himself? He emptied himself by taking 
the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Notice that our Lord Jesus' death was not, was not, our Lord Jesus' death, sorry, there's a lot more words in my head than I can get out of my mouth all at once, sorry. Our Lord Jesus' death was because he didn't flaunt his power. Our Lord Jesus' death was because he didn't exhibit muscle. Our Lord Jesus' death was because he didn't display potency. Our Lord Jesus' death was because he didn't parade about in pride and pomp and privilege. He came as a servant, lowly, unpretentious, powerless. For all of our Lord's miracles, just read the Gospels and you will notice what he did never impressed, never impressed the religious and regal powers of society. He didn't brag. He didn't gather a swelling army of freedom fighters. He didn't call in the most impressive air power for airstrikes. He didn't draw in a cabal of influential movers and shakers. Now, all those things would have impressed the higher-ups of his day, and they impressed the higher-ups of our day. But he didn't do that. Instead, he came as a servant. What does that mean? It means he came as a target. It means he came as one who could be crushed with impunity. He came as one who could be crushed with impunity. No legal recourse in his defense. Crushed with impunity. Recently I read and reviewed, and some of you saw the, read, the reading and review, The Locust Effect by Gary Hagen. Gary Hagen is the president and founder of International Justice Mission, something that I've supported for years. The primary focus is liberating men, women, boys, and girls who are being sex trafficked and human trafficked in the larger majority world, the two-thirds world. That's what they function and do. And as he writes the book, he explains, basically in the book, he wrote it in 2016, long before things happened in 2020 and 2021. And he's explaining why most of our poverty alleviation exercises throughout the world do not have any lasting effect. We pour in money, we give aid, we give help, we dig wells, we bring medical care, and it has no lasting effect. It has immediate effect. It doesn't have a lasting effect. And he answers the question, why is that? It's because the majority world does not have a viable, functioning, healthy criminal justice system. The poor have no police officers that will stand up on their behalf and actually protect them. The poor, the vulnerable poor, as he puts it, have no criminal justice system that will rise up and exercise the law on their behalf. There's no credible justice system in all the rest of the world. By the way, when you want to get critical about our law enforcement and our judicial system, I highly recommend you read this book first before you say anything, anywhere, a public. It'll put it all in perspective. But the biggest thing he draws at is the reason why there's no one there to defend them and why that poverty continues to go on and on and on and on is because the most vulnerable poor are crushed with impunity. Our Lord Jesus Christ came as a servant to be a target, to be one crushed with impunity. 
Thus, my friends, to answer our question, why his humble, obedient death, it's answered with another because. It's because he came as a servant. Well, why did he take on the form of a servant? Someone will ask, and it's a great question. And the response is in verses 3 through 5. The response is in verses 3 through 5, and it's because there is selfish ambition, conceit, and pride running amok in the world. Notice that Paul has to tell these Christians not to exercise selfish ambition, conceit, and pride. He tells somebody that because they have a tendency to do that. Right? You get it? You understand that? So notice what he says in verses 3 through 5. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind in you among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. My friends, just take a moment here. The very traits that make up potency, privilege, and power in our world. Selfish ambition, conceit, pride. The very traits that make up potency, privilege, and power in our world are the very reasons Jesus came as a servant. These traits, my friends, and more, are what course through our social bloodstream and pulse through our global DNA, so much so that Paul will even talk about these Christians living in a crooked and twisted generation. We can all say that about every generation we've grown up These are the very traits, selfish ambition, conceit, and pride are the very traits that might impress us but my friends, these very traits are the very traits, selfish ambition and conceit, that cause violence, brutality, and revolutions in our world. These are the traits that leave behind human debris in the streets of Bucha, where they were shot while riding their bicycles, slaughtered by combatants, and they were running away. These are the traits that leave the emotional and physical wreckages in homes, here in North America, behind closed doors. These vices victimize neighbors and vandalize relationships. Now we normally call characteristics like these sin. Not being, kids can help me out with this one, not being or doing what God requires and doing what God forbids. And dear friends, sin is just killing us. Why did Jesus become a servant? Because these inequities and corruptions that all of us exhibit. Some of us exhibit it in very passive ways. Passive aggressive ways. The rest of us exhibit it in very aggressive ways. We all exhibit these traits. They're just killing us. They have a hold of us. They have shackled us, and they have imprisoned us. Selfish ambition, conceit, and pride. And so Jesus came as a servant. Well, why would his coming as a servant have anything to do with it? Well, Jesus gives you the answer in Mark 10, verse 45. For the Son of Man did not come to be served like the rest of us want to be. The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a what? A ransom for many. We're shackled. We're in a hostage situation. And the Son of Man became 
fully human and became a servant to do what? To set us free from our hostage situation. That's what this is all about. So why was there a resurrection? It's because the unique, one-of-a-kind, unrepeatable, eternal Son of God died. And He died, why? To set us free from our hostage situation. But the question must be asked once more, and other answers are to be sought. And so this is the second time the question is answered in your outline. Why was there a resurrection? Well, it's further answer is this to show that obedient humility and service is the right pattern, is the legitimate social structure in heaven and on earth. Let me say it again. That obedient humility and service is the right pattern and legitimate social structure in heaven and on earth, and it is exactly what will forever be the case when heaven comes to earth on the last great day when Jesus comes to judge the living and the dead. So, verses 9 through 11, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord through the glory of God the Father. Dear friends, there was a resurrection of Jesus from the grave, body, blood, bones, toenails, and hair, gloriously transformed, never again subject to mortality and misery, because it was God saying, Amen, Son! When the Father raised Jesus from the dead, the Father said, Right on, Son! When the Father raised Jesus from the dead, He was saying, Truth, Son! He got it right when we're all wrong. It was the Father's seal of approval, vindication, and validation of Jesus and His way. Jesus' humble service was validated by the Father and vindicated by the Father. The Son's way is the way. This is why Paul began this section of Philippians 2, back up in verse 1, as he's talking to these Christians who have affirmed their allegiance to Jesus, and he begins with these words. Just follow along, verses 1 through 4 here. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord, and of one mind, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. But in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Let this mind be among you, which was also in Christ. This is why Paul will go on to write, down in verses 14 through 16, these words. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may, come, may, be, that you may be blameless and innocent. Children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. In the day of Christ when he returns to judge all of us, the living and the dead, I may not be ashamed of Jesus. Why was there a resurrection? The Father 
validated Jesus' way of being human. It's the Father saying, this one is right. In fact, he said that a couple of times, once at Jesus' baptism, and specifically on the Mount of Transfiguration, he said, this is my beloved Son, hear him. This one's way is right. This is the way. Sorry, Mandalorian stole that line from Jesus. It was to validate that Jesus' way of being human is the way we're intended to be. To validate that Jesus' way of being human is the right way to be human. That Jesus, to validate that Jesus' way of being human is the way we will be. We will be when heaven finally comes to earth. But let's ask our question once more. To scout out a bit more detail. Why was there a resurrection? Well, the answer is very simple. And it's very straightforward. So that you would be here today. That you would be here today. You would hear this proclaim. You would have your selfish ambitions, conceit, and pride challenged. And that you would then run to the obediently humble servant and be ransomed from your hostage situation and have him launch in you his new heavens and new earth destiny. The third reason why there was a resurrection so you'd be here today and hear this today. Here's how Paul puts it in verse 12 and 13. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only is in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation. Don't work for your salvation. I'm not saying that. Work it out. Work out the implications and the applications of all that I've just said. Work it out in your marriages. Work it out in your child raising. Work it out in your neighborhood. Work it out in your life. Work it out in your career. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For... It is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Heaven on earth begins with you who see your selfish ambition, conceit, and pride and are fed up with this hostage situation and run to the one who came as an obediently humble servant to ransom you from it. And you run to him and you run with nothing in your hands you bring. You run and say, Jesus, I screwed it all up. I need you to make me new and start me over again. And you can because you've been raised from the dead on the third day. Why was there a resurrection? For all these reasons I've mentioned, much, much more. And so in the end, our dominant question, why was there a resurrection, leaves us with one final question, actually. How will you respond to these answers and to the Father validating the Son? Will you leave here today unfazed? Will you go on serving selfish ambition, conceit, and pride? Let me ask you this, and I don't ask with any sarcasm, I don't ask with any snootiness. How is that working for you? How's it going in your marriage? 
where selfish ambition, conceit, and pride run rampant? How's it going with your children? How's it going in your career? How's that going in your relationships? How does it feel to know that now, after all of those things I just mentioned, you're about to face death? And your life has been spent serving these merciless hostage takers and pitiless taskmasters, selfish ambition, conceit, and pride. For those of you who may be comfortable with all of that and content to be in the service and slavery and hostage situation of selfish ambition, conceit, and pride, know that when the Father validated Jesus by raising him from the dead, he also gave the whole world, you and I and everybody before us and those to come after us, he gave the whole world the guarantee that this Jesus will return, this Jesus will return to judge the living and the dead. Holding all strict accounts. As Paul puts it in Acts 17, because God has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this is given assurance to all by raising it from the dead. For those who are complacent and content to stay in that hostage situation, know the day is coming. And you will not be able to look him eyeball to eyeball and say, you just don't know what it's like being a man or a woman or a human. You don't know what it's like to be pressured this way or that way. Really? Maybe one or two of you are thinking inside your head, well, I don't like it. In fact, I want to be free of the selfish ambition, conceit, and pride. I mean, I, I agree. I look at my life and it's like a train wreck of my life. And then those same traits promise to demolish even more. Well, my friends, if that's you, then the door is wide open. Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. The door is wide open. Call on Jesus to ransom you and set you free from these slaveholders and to launch His new way of being genuinely human in you. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Finally, dear friends, for those of you who delight in, it, who delight in these answers, who truly celebrate that Christ is risen, He is risen indeed. Rejoice and remember. My friends, it doesn't take away the sting, it doesn't take away the tears, it doesn't take away the grief. Until Jesus returns, your mother and your father and your kids and your wife and your husband are still going to die. And you're still going to get cancer. And there's still going to be financial failure. And there's still going to be economic collapses and wars. It doesn't take all that away. But knowing that He is risen means that we know that there's far more to this life than the grief and the suffering that we experience. It's kind of like being that little boy in that car. And once Daddy gave me the answer, I was never afraid ever again of Granddaddy Longlegs, and they can look pretty violent. Right? But the answer helped me to face 
them and my own fears. Same thing. Knowing that Christ is risen, we are sure. We're sure that death is not the final answer. We're sure that he will come again and he will raise us into life indestructible. And then, what Peter pronounces in 1 Peter 5 will be ours like we've never experienced before and never seen in ways that we could imagine. In 1 Peter 5, 10, Peter said, And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the glory and dominion forever. Amen. Therefore, dear friends, we end with the psalmist's final words in Psalm 16. The words that are talking about Jesus, but amazingly, are words that are talking about us if you are in Christ. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life, and your presence is fullness of joy at your right hand. Our pleasures forever. Let's pray. Oh, our Lord Jesus Christ, what amazing love. An amazing love. It's you humbly obeyed the Father for us, for our salvation. You came as a servant. You came as a target. You came as one to be crushed with impunity. Why? To serve and to give your life as a ransom for many. For we confess to you that selfish ambition, conceit, and pride have run rampant in our lives. We pray that you would break your power in us. We pray, Lord, for any of this day who come who do not believe or have not believed, that, oh Lord, you would quicken, you would revive their hearts to embrace and hold fast to you, Lord Jesus, as you have freely offered in the gospel. And for all of us, Lord, as we face the future, whatever the uncertain future holds. We walk forward with great joy and great confidence because Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Amen.